Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Soup. <laughs> This is the Meteor Club Podcast, a weekly roundtable discussion about all things Meteor. Welcome, everybody, to the Meteor Club Podcast. Indeed. How's it going, Josh? Good, good. I probably have crappy internet, and I'm sitting in a hotel room in San Diego, but I thought this one was worth doing on the road. So, yeah, so today we've got someone from Mongo with us. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, Brian? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Thank you. My name is Brian Ranero. I'm the U.S. Developer Advocate for MongoDB. Uh, I work with the community, um, building understanding about MongoDB. I'm also an engineer. I've been working for the past two and a half years as a senior consulting engineer. And that means basically that any time that someone has a need to scale or plan their deployment with MongoDB or even troubleshoot their uh, deployment of MongoDB, I'm there to help. Nice. Right now, Meteor like only officially supports Mongo. So I thought it would be awesome to have you come on and we could talk a little bit about where Mongo is heading and that kind of thing. And, and then maybe get into some specific Meteor type questions as well. You guys actually just had Mongo World, didn't you? Yeah, it actually finished. Uh, it was the last two days. We just had our uh, closing keynote last night. And that's um, a little bit of a scratchy voice from doing all the talking and speaking there. And it was a lot of fun. I actually um, went to one of your co-working dev shops last week, which was a lot of fun, too. Oh, nice. And, uh, yeah, I did a lightning talk at the San Francisco uh, offices, and it was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. What was your lightning talk on? It was about the aggregation framework. The lightning talk is, you know, that format is five minutes. So I thought real hard, what, what can I do in five minutes? And five, ag- five aggregations in five minutes. Yeah. That's that's impressive. I wish I could write five aggregations in five minutes. I feel like they take me forever to write an aggregation query. Yeah, you know, they're a little bit tricky, and that's what I was doing uh, during the co, uh, co-working space. I've got to come up with five things that show something interesting about this tool set. So. We'll, we'll come back to aggregations, but I, I'm curious, what kind of big announcements did you guys have at Mongo World? I haven't had a chance to look at any kind of news. Yeah, we reached uh, 10 million downloads. Um, which we're pretty happy about. That's a big milestone for us. I think that we have over 300,000 students that have gone through MongoDB University. And for a guy like myself that does a lot of training um, and a lot of education, those were big announcements for us. That's kind of where we are as a company. But as far as the product goes, we're, we're announcing that WireTiger will be the default for version 3.2 to be released later this year. So that's going to be a big change for us. I didn't catch all of it because uh, I was working <laughs> behind the scenes at the time, so I'm trying to remember everything that they announced in the closing keynote. But in addition to that, there is a new feature called Lookup. That means that you can use a Lookup. Essentially, it's a left outer join on documents. Uh, and that's a fresh item uh, just released in the keynote. There's, I myself don't know how much of, of how that's implemented just yet. But uh, Elliot likes to make big surprises during the uh, closing keynote. And that's exactly, well, actually, that was the second keynote day. But, um, and it was a big surprise. Uh, the crowd loved it, and uh, it's an interesting direction for how we're going as a document database. For those that don't know, would you be able to talk on, about Wire Tiger a little bit? Yeah. Why it's so big? Yeah, I'd, ha- I'd be happy to. The original storage engine that MongoDB uh, ran with was called MMAP, MMAP v1, as we call it. And uh, this is based on memory-mapped files. And for several years, we were uh, able to grow with that storage engine. It was very good for read loads and perfect for a multitude of use cases. It had some performance problems for extremely high loads. We knew that we wanted to solve a lot of concurrence problems, a lot of ourselves a deal more flexibility to develop MongoDB into the 3 plus series. Getting a new storage engine API, uh, which comes in hand in hand with the, the new WireTiger storage engine that came out in 3.0. Having both the storage engine API or the pluggable storage engine along with WireTiger was a way for us to increase performance of MongoDB for a broader set of use cases, as well as giving us the flexibility to develop 
um, I'm going to be in a in a more forward thinking fashion uh, that we can serve m- many people. Um, one of the things that Dave, our CEO, had, had talked about during his keynote presentation is that he wants MongoDB to be the, as they say, the new default uh, default database, and that's what we're trying to do here. Is we're trying to be able to build the database into a system that people will just use whenever they start new projects. It's their kind of go-to. So Wired Tiger is a new storage engine that uses compression and non-locking algorithms. So a lot of our users had been asking for a long time for uh, better concurrency control, document-level locking. And Wired Tiger supports document-level concurrency control uh, at the very nature of what, how it's built. So that's a big, huge win for us and for our developers and users since now uh, you can get extremely high write performance in MongoDB. And um, that's been a big win for us with the release of 3.0, which was back in March. And that write performance, like what would you be able to compare it to for the people who's listening, like another database that has great uh, performance like Cassandra or Redis? It's at that level, and according to some benchmarks that I've seen out there, uh, um, I don't know the numbers. I haven't committed what the benchmark numbers are. is quite uh, impressive, so that gives us an opportunity to um, show a great, a great deal of performance uh, in excess of a, a lot of other databases out there. Super stoked to use it. That's amazing. Yeah, what, you know, that's, and it's part of the message too: is go out and give it a shot. Uh, try it. And actually, if the, the thing too about being a consulting engineer, one of the things that I always encourage the people that I, I work with is to test, performance test, for a number of reasons as a best practice. And the important thing to do that we've been encouraging people for a long time now that WireTiger has released is test to your load, test to the way that you use the database so that you'll get some accurate numbers about the way that you're going to be uh, using the system in production. In my own testing with the work that I've done, indeed, the performance is quite impressive. So it's a, uh, it's a quantum leap for us. I think getting more awesome write performance from Mongo is a good thing. But with Meteor, we use the Oplog collection to subscribe to and kind of do looking at, at data as real time as we can to update clients when, when something changes in the database. Do you see, like, is there a way going forward, like maybe a selective op log or something like that? Are you guys planning anything or what would be a better way to do real time, you think? Yeah, so that is the common PubSub way that we, we recommend for people implementing that kind of pattern, that use case, um, tailing the op log. It's one of the cool features that we have. And as a matter of fact, there was, uh, we we're discussing filtered replication as a possible uh, feature in the near future. That's something that we want to hear feedback from the community. Kind of what's going on, what Elliot was talking about in his closing keynote um, from uh, yesterday was there's a lot of thought being given to where we want to go as a database. And a big part of that is getting feedback from the community. It always has been, but we're especially tuning our ears to what you guys want and need. That means common problems that you may have, places that you want to go, and also imaginative ways to use this database, which it's, you know, MongoDB has been around for five years, which is still a very new kind of technology. And the idea that we're using JSON documents as our primary data model. And so what I want to do is foster a lot of imagination about what that can be, and then get the feedback from the community to help shape where the database goes. That's always been a really important part and an enjoyable part of the job. Yeah, I'd be interested to know how you're using the app blog too as well. You, well, you're doing PubSub. Right. Um, I went to talk at, at the dev shop and have uh, kind of an idea of what you're using. I think probably filtered replication works particularly well for you guys. And, and I would say that given the success of Meteor, um, you're having success with that pattern right now too. I think the thing, and this is what, you know, most people hear like, oh, you know, just, just set up a, a replica set and put in the oplog URL and everything's going to be magical. But it's, it's a bit of a double-edged sword because the way Meteor originally set things up is they have a, a poll in diff. So basically that just means the Meteor server will hold on to a query 
and watch it, you know, every 10 seconds or so, they'll see if the data has changed by just re-pulling the database. And then they'll send out the differences to the, to the client over DDP. But then when you turn on Uplog, you're getting the real-time updates from the Mongo database. And then the problem becomes the high write load, right? So if I want to scale to multiple Meteor servers, I just I turn on the Uplog and each Meteor server gets those updates almost real-time. The problem becomes when you're doing when you're dealing with like 2,000, 3,000 writes, you know, a second or something that high, the meteor servers start to get buried trying to keep up with that. So that's that's kind of why I was asking about that. Yeah, well, the, the the thing that's interesting about MongoDB is that um, it's so easy to use. Like a lot of people believe it's magic, so to speak, or and that's the hard part. I don't believe in magic in engineering disciplines. Uh, whenever I'm consulting with a, a company or a client is saying, okay, what are, you, what are you trying to do? Help me understand what your domain is, your business domain, and then we'll work from there and design a system. So in this case, uh, tailing the op-log is a common pops-up pattern. It's one that we've been talking about for years. It's actually how we do our backup system. It's the basic model of how we do our cloud backup system. So it's a reliable way of doing things, tailing from the op-log. I happen to be working with another company that uses Uplog tailing it for a, a work queue pattern. And basically, they're using MongoDB as a worker queue. And um, they want to avoid the same problem that you're describing, this kind of polling to see if anything's changed on the database, because that's unnecessarily expensive. Uh, you just listen to the Uplog for the changes, and any mutation to the data that occurs in, in any given collection will appear, of course, in the Uplog. So my suggestion to them is tail the op-log and you have a listener there on the op-log that alerts the workers in your work pool. Instead of having all these thousands of workers pulling, 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 they go to sleep after doing a, a set of work on their last bit that they pulled off the queue, the last task. They go to sleep but can be reawakened by a single listener on the op-log. That's improved performance quite a bit for them. Yeah. That, that doesn't surprise me. That's, I've seen that suggested as a possible solution a couple of times on the Meteor forums. Like just create a, a filter layer that basically keeps an eye on everything and then pushes it down to the servers that care. How is it set up with your, your tailing the op-log? Do you have multiple tailing? Uh, are you tailing multiple cursors on the op-log? You know, I, I honestly don't know. I haven't gotten that deep into it. I think they're just looking at the entire op-log. Um, that, uh, yeah, I mean, the op-log, depending on how much time you want to record, um, the op-log can become quite large, but necessarily so, because it's recording all the rights for a given time. Mm -hmm. uh, and let's say also, too, it would probably be helpful to your listeners to understand what the op-log is. The best way to describe it, when I do my teaching and, and instruction, is that it's like a circular buffer, meaning that it's going to be an operation log. That's what we call it, the op-log. And any writes that come into the database are recorded into the op log. And since it's a circular buffer, it's a fixed data sized data structure. So it'll never explode. You'll never get this uh, ever increasing log collection. It just keeps going around and around like a circular buffer and overriding itself. Okay, that's the mechanism, that's the backbone by which uh, replication in MongoDB works. Uh, secondaries will tail the op-log, secondary, uh, which are redundant nodes, uh, there for backups, in MongoDB replica sets, will tail the op-log and pull all the writes and then perform those operations on themselves, and that's how they keep, they keep the secondaries in sync. So with this case, the op-log contains, you can think of the op-log as uh, containing a number of writes or operations that occurred over a given period of time. The bigger the op-log you have, the more time you have on the op-log. Uh, you know, in, in production environments, I recommend that people keep an op-log that's sufficient to contain 24 hours. Uh, that's a good minimum. If you are extremely high traffic, that op-log is going to be bigger and bigger and bigger. A common pattern that people misuse is that they'll tail the op-log, consume the op-log with a query, drop the cursor, uh, they've consumed the op-log for what they were doing, and then they issue another request on it. With a tailable cursor, you keep the cursor open, and it's waiting for the next operation to come in. So you, you, once you've gone through the op-log, you just stay there trying to consume the next write that comes in on the system. So you don't have to go over the... You don't have to play back the entire tape to get to the latest read, so to speak. 
you're just hit, hitting there, uh, staying right on the where you last read, and each new write that comes to the system comes down, comes down the water. Yeah, so I haven't looked at the code, but I would guess that we're just using the single cursor. What they did for now is they added, uh, it's called an oplog back pressure environment variable, and you can set it to be like if there's more than X messages, it stops listening to the oplog cursor, does a pull and diff on all the data it cares about, and then starts listening to the, the oplog again. So it's kind mm-hmm. of a maybe a, an easy hack to at least get around potential performance issues because the problem is really it's just it chews up the CPU on the node processes is trying to process all those offload messages that it might not care about. Yeah, it would it would be interesting to know. So I'm I'm guessing that if you're pulling off the offload, you have a number of subscribers, the their clients, client application somewhere out there, that they have a piece of data that they're that they're interested in that they want to resync themselves to. And this, is, this could be from uh, cellular clients or mobile clients. So the challenge with mobile is that I, if, if I'm syncing, I want to get myself current with all the changes that were made while I was disconnected. That could be several hours while I turned my phone off to go to sleep. Yeah. It could be several hours um, if I'm on a plane um, or I have inconsistent or unreliable network, which I am told happens quite frequently in the real world. So the problem is, is that you need to make sure, um, as I understand your problem space, is that you need to make sure that you're not throwing away data that a mobile client is going to require. But the problem is you never really know how long the mobile client is going to be disconnected. No, no, I don't, I don't think that's the problem. The issue is more that the, the node servers have this notion of a merge box. And so when I perform a query against the Mongo database, they keep that data in the merge box, and then they use the oplog tailing to kind of update that merge box. And so the issue is that the CPU process gets eaten up. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe that is close to what you're saying. It gets eaten up as they're like processing through all those and keeping the oplog or keeping the merge box up to date for the clients that are connected currently. So if you disconnect, like we don't really care about that data. And when you reconnect, the client-side application should know, you know, roughly here's a query, it'll send it to the server, and the server will do the right thing. Yeah, so either the, the way that I figure is that uh, somebody needs to know the last time I got the information. Let's take it from the perspective of the client. If I sync up the first time with all the data that I need, whatever it may be, um, and stay connected, the trivial case, no big deal, because um, there's nothing that the server side has to retain for me. Everybody knows that I'm up to date and I have a reliable connection. But if that connection drops or my ability to pull that data from the server stops, I need to have a state, uh, a known state somewhere of the last time that I had data, my last time I was updated. If I keep that on the client, the next time the client application connects back to the server, I'm going to say, give me everything since the last time I was able to talk to you. Um, that would mean that I would have to query based on that time step somewhere. And the thing I want to avoid is that triggers a query back on the oplog. On the other hand, if I say that, that the last time I sank is that data is the last time we saw from the server perspective, the last time I saw the client was this timestamp, I'm going to have to save everything that happens the client subscribes to until I next see him. And that can become larger and larger and larger. I have to maintain the data they have. So there's a couple of ways that they, we can do that. Um, there's a couple of different patterns that that can be applied. In one case, we might want to use, we certainly could see CPU consumption going up if I'm consuming a bunch of memory to keep that stuff in state, that, that these logs uh, or these events are going to be recorded in some kind of uh, memory structure. That could be that could be it. I'd have to see what your architecture is. Actually, it's a pretty interesting space. We could do a consulting <laughs> engagement. Uh, yeah, it depends on how, it, how that's being accomplished. Generally speaking, MongoDB doesn't consume a whole lot of CPU, especially for, uh, do you happen to know which version that you're running on? 
Uh, I think right now 2.6 is the officially supported version, but they've updated the driver to one that's compatible with 3.0 as well. Okay. I would yeah. say most most people are probably running 2.6 in production. Yeah, so in either case, you're still using the default storage engine at that version as well, and even 3.0 is still uh, MMAP v1. That particular storage engine is not going to be consuming much CPU normally, so it just kind of depends on what else is going on in the server and see what you know, what's going on with that. Yeah, I think that the CPU consumption issue really comes in on the node side of things. Like when we're just trying to process the op log and decide whether we care about that data, when there's a high write volume, it's just, it's really, really hard to consume all that and decide what we care about. Yeah, and I think actually Wired Tiger, if, if it's occurring on the high write volume as well, I mean, it's, it's feasible that because you guys are, are, are running so successfully, during those periods, there could be high lock that, that could be occurring at that time or during those periods. Moving up to Wire Tiger would alleviate that, that particular problem to a great extent. And so that, that may be something that you guys want to start planning for in the future. And, of course, testing for, um, making sure that you're ready to go and you understand and characterize the load. But the great is that you know you you have experience with the load going in there so you'll be able to see the dividends based on what you already see is the traffic you have a history of the traffic that's coming in and then you'll be in a good position to see the performance benefits once you use that history for testing all right you got any questions ben i'm, I'm monopolizing all these <laughs> This is great, actually. This is this is a fantastic interview. By the way, this is the most most deep, deeply technical uh, interview. I've, uh, this is an impressive podcast. Yeah. Nice, thanks. <laughs> well, now that I'm talking, it's going to be less technical. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I asked a few guys. I let them knew know about this uh, conversation that we were having, and uh, got like. First off, I just want to say you guys are doing a great job listening to the community, making the changes that you guys need to, and there was like some stigmas out there in the world. And I think it was a lot around the fact that people didn't understand uh, schema lists and like document oriented databases. But um, here's a few out here and you probably heard it before, but like dealing with joins, you know, say you had a document and uh, it had multiple translations out in a, of a language in it. Are all those translations supposed to be stored on the document? or in another collection and doing a join or what are the things around joins that you see and like your answer to them? Yeah. Um, uh, how much time do you got? <laughs> so this is actually a pretty interesting topic. In fact, we were just discussing uh, joins with uh, members of our community that we, we the masters, the MongoDB masters a program of people that have been uh, supporters of uh, community involvement with MongoDB. And this, we were just talking about this one. What is the value? What does it look like? What does it look like for a document-oriented database? So the, 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 the first thing I always like to think about is they're probably the things that made our adoption so popular was natural affinity that understand it really easily about. I'm going to be putting in the database things that I'm naturally dealing with in an object-oriented language. But there are the cases that in the case of the language, like I have maybe metadata that's shared across multiple versions of the, of the same text in different languages. The first thing I always say in the consultation is explain to me what it is you're trying to do so we make sure that the schema matches and is appropriate to your, the work that you're doing. Okay, in this case, I'd say that I would put the different, not all the language versions into the same document because it's not likely that you need all the language version, all, every different version of the language in the same document. You're not, you're not looking for, you're looking for a language, uh, for that text in that specific language. Um, in fact, there was a online business that was going multilingual, if you will, uh, internationalizing itself. And they had done just that, which was a, a, an anti-pattern. Because when, they, when a user interfaces with them, they know the language that the person is, is speaking in from the user agent stream. It's unnecessary to pull every version of the same text from every single language. That's not the question that they're asking of the database. 
And the question they're saying is, what language, uh, get me the text or the copy or the ad copy, whatever it is, in a language that's appropriate to the person who's, who's asking for it. So in that case, I would say you want to have a, a, a language per document. And then you understand it's based on the question. So another kind of way I, I like doing uh, trainings to help people understand this kind of modeling is to say that, well, number one, this notion of schemaless. We actually prefer to say flexible schema because schema is actually very important in MongoDB. It's actually the thing that I stress is the most, the biggest factor in the performance of the database is designing the schema appropriately. And so how do I do that? How do I know if I've got a good schema or a bad schema or if it's an appropriate thing to be designed? And I say, well, back up for a second. When you want to design a schema for MongoDB, you're designing the schema to answer a question. What question does the database need to answer? And, and that's how we're going to structure our schema and our documents to answer the specific questions that you need to ask at the time. So in that case, if, if my user agent string says that uh, I need to know what this text is in, in English, I look for the text that uh, I, my query would have that is a predicate that the, the language that I'm using to retrieve that document. It's unnecessary for me to pull all other languages in that case. Josh, what was last thing you heard? I heard uh, just that you don't need to pull all that language data. Oh, okay, good. So the, the question was, are there any other reasons that I want to use joins? Or, or, or joins, basically the, the bigger question, are joins uh, appropriate something Am, am I losing something by not having the ability to support joins? And it goes back to that notion of what is it that I'm trying to do? What's my use case and patterns? So generally I tell people, for instance, if, if we're working with a high volume application, high, a high request rate, uh, and then we need to return data back to back from the database and, and as fast as we possibly can, Typically, we know the set of questions that we're going to be asking in the database. In the case of the example of a, of a product catalog, I know that when, let's, let's say I'm an on, online retailer, somebody's searching for a product, I want to get the information about that product back to the user as fast as I can. So I know I'm going to be asking a set of questions uh, about, uh, or repetitively about a given product or set of products. If, if I organize all my data together in that one document, when the question comes in, I can just do one disk seek, going as low as the storage layer, I can do one disk seek if necessary to get that document and then move it back to the user as fast as possible. There's no joins that I have to do, there's no mapping through the ORM layer and you know, sending it back to the client. Uh, I can get it out as fast as I, I can. So one way I, I help people understand how to do the schema, uh, what, what to put in the document, is if you need that information on the request, put it together, because you're just gonna grab it with one request and, and pump it back to the client and get it there uh, fast. Now, generally, we, we advise people to think along the lines in a spectrum closer towards denormalization, because we wanna optimize for performance here. But there are cases that you wanna use a model that's a little bit normalized, and knowing sometimes instead of embedding something within a document, um, having it in two places, uh, having the, the object or entity that I'm pulling back from to the client uh, will be composed of two documents together. If the data is highly uh, mutable, I might want to put that or changeable component or sub-document and put it in a, in a collection of its own. Uh, if it's static and I need it every time I make the request, that's easy. Embed, easy, easy way. Um, there's different balances doing that. In, in as far as the, the schema model I'm working with. Yeah. I think with uh, Meteor, like we're dealing with volatile data like as, as a given right out of the bat just because of everything being reactive. And if we denormalized everything, then we have, an we have a situation where when we're writing back to the database, we might need to be writing to multiple collections. And so having everything in its own collection is almost like the standard way of doing it in just like standard, but depending on the situation again. And also Meteor has a weird thing where it's not reactive with sub-documents. Uh, yeah. So we'll send the whole sub-document at once. Yeah, mm -hmm. I will agree with that. 
I, I would actually add to that or maybe answer that a little bit, Ben, because it's almost a case by case basis. I ran into an issue the other day where like I have stores and I have store reps and each rep and each store has an objective. And so like there's this three way join going on between stores, reps and objectives. And we have this table called objective statuses that we return. And I actually found, you know, when we were returning a hundred thousand of those records down the pipe, just to calculate some numbers, like that was really, really bad. So actually Mongo was super fast at returning that, but then DDP uh, was really bad at processing all that data coming across the wire. We ended up uh, just using aggregation and we run an aggregation query every 30 seconds to get the numbers we care about and just denormalize it right onto the record, the objective record. Unfortunately, I didn't catch all of the detail there. I don't, I don't know if you want to repeat. Um, be happy to make sure that I got the details. But one way to think about this too is like, I, I keep using coming back to this idea of what's the question that you're asking of the database. And again, the idea that in your case, you, you have to optimize for performance because I, I assume that the load is coupled to how many clients you're seeing coming in um, general traffic back to the, to the server. So again, you want to model your data in such a way that you're saying, I can pull everything back on a, on a request. So if, if you're about to get something that is a combination of three items, the natural idea would be to put it in one, in one document. But if your update pattern means that you're going to be, then one update fans up to write among many, many collections, that changes the way that you might want to model your schema. So it, it depends on what, what it is that you're doing. Do you want to maybe repeat a little bit of what we were talking about there? The, the connection broke up a little bit there. Yeah, so I was just talking about like the three-way join. Like I ended up using an aggregation to combine the data and just put it on the one collection I ultimately cared about. So rather than trying to do a join on the client, you know, I'm just doing the, the join on the server using an aggregation query every 60 seconds and that's pseudo real time enough for the client to see those numbers update. Yeah, that's an interesting pattern too. I mean, that's something you would definitely you'd want to use. Another way of thinking about this is like the event sourcing pattern. It's kind of re-emergent, but the notion here is that updates that I that, that I send to the to the database are mutable events, like a log. And then whenever I want to determine what's uh, what the current state of this object or entity is I, I pull, pull the events and I can interpret them in different ways at different points in time. That, that kind of sounds like something that might work for you guys. Again, without know, not knowing uh, a whole lot of detail, but being very much intrigued, that might be one way that you want to think about your schema. But again, I would say that just this discussion is, this is a lot of the same kind of things that we have in consultations because this notion that schema is so important. It, it is the, the major factor um, in performance. And although it's, it, it's important, it's not hard to get. You just kind of have to think about what it is that you, that you want to ask of the database. And by the way, um, you can also think of a collection has an indexing strategy associated. That's how indexes are, the scope of the indexes are across the collection. So what I put inside of a collection it are things I'm searching for by the same set of questions. An index facilitates a query pattern or, or set of questions. So objects that I want to find together or, or get back together or I'm asking for the same way can go into that same collection. This is of particular interest to me because now we can have objects that are or documents of different shapes, essentially polymorphic entities in the same collection sharing a common indexing strategy. And that's, that's part of the interesting kind of thinking beyond and imagining other ways that we can use the database in, in these new kind of ideas and patterns. That could be a, a solution for your particular problem as well, because you have different types of things in the same collection. On more of like a meteor world kind of talk. So, uh, Josh, like in that situation, I use collection hooks quite a bit, which is a package. Uh, Brian for uh, Meteor specifically and every time that something happens on on a certain collection You could tell it to run run a function before it happens after it happens That's what I've used before 
in the past when I did need to denormalize more performance. Yeah, I mean, essentially, this is a pattern of incremental aggregation, which is a good pattern to use in, in many cases. So I'm, I assume that the hook, it's there, it captures an event or n number of records have been updated, again, probably from the op log, and then boom, fire off an, uh, an incremental aggregation, either by number of records or by time interval, every 10 minutes or 10th of an hour, six, six minutes, fire off the hook. Yeah, that's very cool. I think that's cool. Again, a very like deep question coming up. But, I like deep questions. But looking for a broad answer. Like what are the pros and the cons between like relational versus Mongo? And what are like some of the screaming scenarios that are like for sure, yes, you want relational, for sure, yes, you want Mongo? And just your input on, on that. Where MongoDB really, really shines in a number of places, um, but where people first recognize the power of it, as, as I did when, uh, before I started working for MongoDB, is I needed to accomplish a, a big task in a short time. It was an experimental POC that I had to put in place as fast as I could. And so um, I needed to be able to deliver something very shortly with confidence. And I had heard about MongoDB through the grapevine, through the community, and I figured I'd give it a shot. And within two hours, I was pulling data off our servers and getting results back confidently. And um, as a person that has managed a, a distributed set of clusters, I, I don't deploy things. I'm not cowboy style because I don't like getting the call in the middle of the night. So that was actually really nice. What we find is that our users were able to accomplish a lot, a lot of really interesting things very quickly. Um, so that works really well for us. Two is that um, it's easy for your, for developers to part of that reason of you get more productivity from development teams because object oriented thinking you know it's been around for years and years decades we have a natural understanding of object orientation and of course that's easy to model that into MongoDB so everybody can get it. the barriers to entry are very low for a team that can agree upon. If they can agree upon an object model, they can agree upon a schema easily in MongoDB. The case is that, of course, you're going to need to put a lot of data into the database. You're going to need to query and have low latencies. That's also what MongoDB is built for. That's actually, it started off with Elliot and, and Doug Dwight, excuse me, trying to solve a basic problem of building a database that could provide the results as fast as they need them on, on a web service. That's part of where it really shines. It, another place that it, it's definitely what you want to use is if you want to have uh, the safety of automatic failover because the whole reason for having a replica set is it gives you redundancy and uh, automatic failover. So if, if I have a member of a replica set, a node fail, the remaining nodes detect that failure and take appropriate action. So they'll, uh, for instance, elect a new primary. And I don't have to do any manual failover. It happens for me. Um, so that keeps my uptime high. So if you need high performance and high uptime, and, and probably even more important than, than the SLAs of how much uptime I've had this week is the um, minimum time to restore service, which is often more important. That's also what's great about MongoDB is this automatic failover. It just saves so much time and money. And uh, great hair, by the way, too. And then the, the third part, of course, is that it, it scales, um, that you can keep adding incrementally shards to a cluster to increase not only the capacity of the database, but the, the bandwidth. So it allows you a great deal of flexibility. That's really, really good. Once people understand to, to think about, again, that idea of modeling in a document-oriented way, there's a lot of cases that we are extremely good for. We, we want to be at that default generalized solution that reaches out and helps people across a huge community. That's what we found MongoDB to be good at. Yeah, relational stuff. I, I think that relational databases, they aren't necessarily going anywhere. There's a lot of learning with and, and expertise with database uh, programmers and administrators out there. That of course, they can add a lot of value into the community themselves and for years. What I find is that uh, 
a lot of our users will use MongoDB and relational database on the back end to get some business logic accomplished there sometimes too. So there's polyglot persistence. We're using a, a number of databases together and MongoDB might be a staging database in front of a relational database that handles a subset of the data behind it. So you're, you're calling all of your data from all these sources and then uh, putting in um, some set of data for business, some business analytics on the backside. So that's a common pattern that we see. You've talked a little bit about aggregation. I said we come back to the topic. Can you talk about what aggregation is and uh, how you can kind of use it to, to query your data? The aggregation framework has been around since, if I remember, 2.2 or 2.0. Don't know the point release, but the, the great thing about the aggregation framework is it's, we're going to be doing, of course, aggregate functions, and these include groups, sorts, counts, averages, sums, that kind of stuff. And the idea with the aggregation framework is that we needed something that could do these kinds of re reporting, basic reporting functions in a very expedient way, in a very performant manner, but also be really easy to use because we wanted to be consistent with the ease of use in, in MongoDB. So the aggregation framework is written into the native C++ query language, so it's right embedded with MongoDB, and you, you, it has a declarative syntax that you're going to perform an aggregation task. Let's say I want to find out what the um, average number of users I see coming into the Meteor servers at a given time is. So I'm going to, I'm going to make that count across maybe a time interval or something like that. So the way that I build that task is I know that there's a selection that I need to make on the subset of the data and then the actual aggregate uh, function that I want to perform. So I need to find the records that I'm looking for, then to average them. So the way that the aggregation framework builds tasks or allow you to, this declarative framework, is that you use the same idea as a pipeline on the Linux command line, for instance. So I might grep cat to grep to awk to sed, piping the output of one operation into the next. And that's the same way that the aggregation framework works. So I'll have a match operator that gets that selectivity on the documents I'm looking for, and the output of the match, the resulting documents that I get from the match, gets pumped into the next operation, which would be a grouping and averaging operation. And I can build very sophisticated um, uh, aggregate functions together by you know, making this pipeline of different operators. So it's pretty easy to, to get, wrap your head around and, and get started. I've done a lot of talks over the years about the aggregation framework, and the easiest ones to show uh, in the, uh, are, are these kinds of groups and averages. But for my own kind of fun, I'll throw in every once in a while a, a more sophisticated aggregation task that shows you can do more complicated computations. So one slide shows me shows an aggregation uh, task where it's uh, uh, calculating variance of an average, which I liked a lot. That was pretty cool to put together. So reporting in this fashion is pretty cool. What are the differences between aggregation and MapReduce? I know I'm pretty sure aggregation, you can only run against one collection, correct? Yeah, that's, that's the way it works. So MapReduce, generally you query against a, a collection at a time. If you were querying to two collections, in MongoDB, whether it was the aggregation framework or anything, even using MapReduce, you'd be sending a query to two, two collections would at least involve two queries. But there, of course, can be millions of documents maybe in each of those collections. So the main difference between the aggregation framework and MapReduce are the types of functions that I can do. Aggregation framework, again, are these aggregate functions, grouping functions, sorting functions, summations. MapReduce allows me to do a little bit more sophisticated kind of computation correlation. Let's say um, I'm pulling in sensor data and I want to find out how one sensor's readings correlate to another, so I do a coefficient of correlation. That's something I can do in a MapReduce task. And so there's a couple of different ways I can accomplish MapReduce as a computation strategy. There's the native implementation of MapReduce in, in MongoDB. Um, it's very helpful for people learning how to use MapReduce as a strategy. 
Uh, I've done a couple of demos with that. Um, so people who may not be familiar with using MapReduce, it's really easy to try it out on MongoDB because we, the MapReduce implementation is written in JavaScript uh, as part of the JavaScript execution engine. But at the same time, uh, you don't have to maintain like a, a separate Hadoop HDFS cluster or Yarn cluster um, that people might be more familiar with as MapReduce is a strategy with Hadoop. That said, you want to be careful with MapReduce because uh, the native implementation of it, because uh, those computations can be pretty heavyweight. Uh, for the more sophisticated MapReduces that you're doing over a greater number of uh, greater amount of data in, in your database. So for things that are particularly computationally intensive that you want to get a lot of parallel processing on over a large data set, we have the Hadoop connector that allows you to link up Hadoop and Yarn and HDFS and PIG and Spark and Flume and then hook that up to MongoDB so that you can actually pull data out to be processed among a very large processing cluster and then be put, uh, exported out to HDFS if you choose or right back into MongoDB in a kind of closed-loop processing, closed processing idea or architecture for uh, uh, incremental analytics that I might be using for things like um, media servers and uh, intelligent business rules and things like that. So, it, again, it's only really limited by your imagination, so to speak, of what you can dream up. That's crazy. I had no idea you guys had a Hadoop connector. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because um, part of what made <laughs> I'm forced from uh, the MongoDB world is that uh, I did a presentation about that just last night or it seemed like last night. Uh, <laughs> but that'll be posted on uh, mongodb.com or .org slash presentations, along with everybody else that presented at MongoDB World. So I would encourage people to go check that out. That happened to be, I'm not ashamed to say, one of the most popular talks yesterday and most highly attended. So I'm going to hurt, sprain my arm, patting myself on the back there. Um, and that's about as much self-advertisement as I'm, I'm comfortable with. But yeah, it, check it out. I would encourage people to go see that. There's a lot of exciting things about Spark too, which is a different pattern or a different strategy that also connects into MongoDB as well. Let's shift again. I want to talk a little bit about the university stuff that you guys are doing. What is the university and does it cost people money to attend classes on there? Second question. First, no, we offer the university for free. Because we, again, we want to foster adoption and understanding and we want to get that user base nice and big and we don't want anybody to be confused about how to use MongoDB. So it's out there. There's a lot of great classes. I started off at MongoDB as a developer on the Java driver. Um, the reason I mentioned that I had a really great boss named Jeff Yemen who's teaching a class in how to use MongoDB with Java. The uh, education team, one of my colleagues, a former consulting engineer like myself, um, Jason Zucchetto, has just joined that team. So he's taking all of his knowledge and putting it into the university courses. So you get the feedback of field cases informing the actual instruction curricula that we post there. So it's things like learning how to build your first app, schema design, all the way up through advanced schema design, operations, how to support a cluster, how to shard, pick a sharding key, everything that you need to know to be really productive with MongoDB. And I encourage people to take advantage of that. The education that the university is run by uh, Shannon Bradshaw, who I've had the pleasure of working with, and we're talking about um, what a, a Hadoop and Spark class would look like. So <laughs> after I get off the phone, I've got to go talk to him and, and talk about the curricula that will be laid out there and what might be appropriate. So we're always looking for ways of making more content interesting and treating content into the university for you guys to use. Yeah, it's a really high quality. Uh, the feedback we get from the users as well it has always been really positive. What they're able to do as a consultant that I go into a, 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 um, a customer that has had the training, I'm very impressed by uh, their level of understanding based on the university courses alone. So it's a very effective and valuable course that we make available. Cool. I've heard a lot of positive things about it. I signed up 
So, so I'll definitely be uh, joining you guys on one of the upcoming uh, universities. And I think it's awesome. Is it going to stick around? Like, do you guys like kind of are, are as a company like dedicated to this? And yeah, we're we're very committed. It's 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 part of the culture that um, we have. Because you know, there's one of the great things about actually this company is the people that work here that are passionate about community. That's in, in fact when we were growing. That's how we found the people that have become our engineering core. They were early adopters, early users. Of they would say, hey, you need to be doing this, or uh, in some cases, they would find bugs. Uh, in other cases, they, they came from the experience um, with databases, or, or like myself, distributed systems. We would reach out to them and say, we really like uh, what you're talking about. We really like your involvement. Would you help us build this thing? And over the years, we've built up a, a corpus of fantastic engineers that um, – constantly induce me to up my game <laughs> constantly learning from these people and like i say uh, i you know happy to you know give a shout out to shannon and jason and uh jeff and andrew who who runs the entire education team because there's a lot of passion there everybody's really um interested in making sure that people are successful that they understand mongodb they're confident with trying it out that they they don't encounter problems avoidable problems Things that uh, you know, learning how to index properly so that you, when you, when you use MongoDB, it's always going to be the best case. The most frustrating problems was that could have been avoided, and so that's why we're committed to the education. And in fact, what I used to say to my consulting engagements is, you know, I'm not a sales guy. I'm just here to make you successful. I am judged, and I judge myself whether or not you're successful with MongoDB. So we do everything we can to help people understand it and, and really go far. I would definitely agree with that approach. I mean, I, I do a lot of the same things with Meteor itself, you know, talking about security or performance or that kind of thing. And I would agree, actually, with the, the indexing thing. Uh, I've got an article on my blog where, like, I just added a simple index, and it was like an order of magnitude faster yeah. for a real real-world application. And it's just funny, like... People don't think about these things when they go to production. But. Yeah, and, and yeah, it's to say, too, is that the world is kind of changing in, a, in, a, in an exciting way. The number of engineers that have worked on distributed systems or databases directly had been limited, and, and that's changing in an exciting way. But the problem is, the challenge is, is that they're intelligent, smart engineers, but they, this is, may not be something that they've seen before. But once, once we can give them a quick study on how to declare index, and how to declare them appropriately, they're off and running. And so um, the, the cool part is, is that as the field of people start using these systems and stuff like that, they're going to have maybe a little bit of a learning curve, a steep learning curve in some cases with distributed systems by their nature. If you can help them avoid those common pitfalls, it's really exciting because those people are building things that are going, you know, they're going to be the next crowdsourcing applications are going to be in the next share economy, the, any given thing, stuff that I can't imagine they're going to be doing. And that's a lot of fun. The, the best part of doing presentations and teaching is when I look out there and I see somebody get it. I can see the, the, the cognitive jump and it's like giving a kids, uh, a kid Lego Legos. They're all like, I want to pop this open and I want to build now. Like you can see them say, I get it. And now I want to go. And that's the best part. And we have a whole company filled with people like that. Everybody's trying very hard to make sure that um, our community understands and is successful. And, uh, and I've got to tell you, by the way, that uh, Meetup, the, the co-hacking space in San Francisco that I went to, was a blast. You guys have done a great job in your community as well. And it was, it was a lot of fun to sit there and code with other people and chat and absorb what they have to share and learn. The Lightning yeah. Talks was a great, great idea. I have always had a positive experience anytime I've flown out to San Francisco and, and gone to the dev shops. And it really is like, it's an amazing energy to just sit there as people are coming in the door and learning and asking questions. And, and then they like bring in the food and then they like give you this crazy meetup that's densely packed with information. And then it all shows up on YouTube later too. So yeah, that's fantastic. And you guys, you guys serve burritos and, and in San Francisco, they're very picky about burritos, and you guys pick some very nice ones. So you, you're right on the money with that. Good choice. 
Well, it's not not us directly. We don't work for Meteor, but yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Sorry. Excuse me. That's all right. <laughs> Still made me feel good. Yeah. That's all that matters. <laughs> all right. So I think we've we've covered a ton here, and I want to say thank you for coming on the show. Is there anything like you want to add before we wrap up? Yeah, just a little bit. Like, uh, encourage people to reach out to us through the community forums. In addition, we, we have MongoDB uh, user, uh, the Google group, where, where people can post questions if they need to. Part of my job is to answer as many of those questions as I can. And um, we have actually a community support team that's headed by Steny uh, Steniker, who is a, a community support engineer in Sydney, and he's up here visiting with me. And we went to MongoDB together, uh, MongoDB World together. So I, myself, in this, in this role, is, the desire and design is for me to interact with the community. So I would encourage people to do that. They can tweet at me at Blimpiot um, is my Twitter handle. Um, I joke that's easy to remember because you'll think, yeah, why don't we have Blimpiots? So Blimpiot. Or my email at MongoDB is really simple. It's Brian spelled with a Y, B-R-Y-A-N, at MongoDB.com. And uh, anytime anybody wants to talk, I'm there. I'm eager to do it. Nice. So. Yeah, I hope to see everyone. I hope to see you guys out there sometime. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Brian, I really appreciated how you talked about how people should think about the schema ahead of time. And uh, that's a big thing to understand. And definitely appreciated like your overview of the importance of Mongo and, and the things that uh, that it solves and what's so exciting about it. Also, the last thing is just talking to you and, and hearing you explain stuff, especially Wire Tiger, makes me think the future is like super exciting for Mongo and your guys' dedication and the culture that you guys have. Just like big thumbs up. I really want to thank you for being on the show. It's been awesome. Thank you so much for the thank you so much for the invite. It's a it, this is a a great podcast. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for your hospitality and inviting me on. Very honored. Yeah. Very cool. All right. All right. Well, one last thing, man. We got to do our picks. Oh, crap. I don't have a pick. <laughs> you don't have a pick? We'll make Ryan. you go first. Me? What's oh, shit. Yeah. What's a pick? A yeah, pick is like something cool oh. that you want to do a shout out to. And it doesn't have to be anything technical or it can be technical. I do have one. It's kind of, it's kind of cool. Uh, my pick is the Kino kit. Um, so I'm a father of three daughters. And um, my eldest daughter, uh, Nicoletta, is always wanting to, she, she wants to learn, she wants to program. And I, I definitely want to encourage that. But as a father uh, and someone who's involved in the community, hard for me to figure out um, how am I going to do that. And then I found out about the Kino, which is a, it's based on a Raspberry Pi. It, what it does is it, it's a kit that allows you to build your own computer easily. And when I say your own computer, it's targeted for 10 and, and up. The notion here is that she's going to be able to put it together herself. It's a little pricey for a Raspberry Pi-based um, kit. It's 150 bucks, but the deal is that she'll be able to achieve that on her own based on the instructions and things like that. And I've been saying, okay, we got to make sure you do all your chores, and then we'll get the computer. And so she earned her points to get the computer, so we're going to order it. And um, when I get back home. Uh, we're going to put it together. She's going to put it together. And that's what I'm really looking forward to is the achievement that she'll feel of putting the, the computer together herself and turning it on and watch it boot up. So I think that's pretty cool. Nice. All right. I'll, I'll jump in so I can piggyback off that, actually. My wife ran across uh, something called Creator Box. And, uh, it's kind of like Loot Kit or Bark Box or something like that. You just get uh, email to you. In that box is like a, just a pre-made kit. And it's got like wood and instructions and like a motor or something. And... I loved it because this month, um, like Thursday, it came to our house and our kids just got like super excited when they saw the box. They're like, oh, it's here, it's here. You know, they open it up and it turned out to be a paper airplane launcher and it's motorized. And so it's got two motors and a battery and uh, some wood as like a platform to kind of shuttle the paper airplane through. You know, it's just awesome to watch them spend 
I don't know, I guess close to an hour, the three of them together just working, which is such a rare sight in my house. Like no one's fighting, no one's yelling. They're just working together and having fun. And then in the end, you know, they, they got it wrong and brought it to me and they're like, it's shooting the paper airplane backwards. And so there was that moment where I got to teach them about like polarity and how to figure out how to wire it all together to go the right way. So that was, that was pretty awesome. So creator box, I think it's creatorbox.com. Maybe. That sounds awesome. Yeah, I'm gonna totally get down on that. On both of those. Well, gosh, I'm the one with the kid here, but I have nothing to do with kids. Like my shout out, my uh, my pick was gonna be Runkeeper, the iOS app. So finally got in on that. No, Josh, no. So Josh, I got in because of you, bro. Runkeeper is good, but I use an app called iSmooth Run, and it, it works with Runkeeper but it doesn't, it, it like smooths out your run points. So you don't get like these wonky, like I always had problems with the iPhone four where like it would say I jumped, like I, I did a Superman jump into someone's backyard. And so I smooth run like uses data normalization techniques to figure out that that point was wrong <laughs> based on my pace and stuff. All right. Well, I retract my pick then. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean Runkeeper the app is good and the social part of it's good but not not the phone app I wouldn't use the phone app personally right on alright guys well this has been a great week thank you guys for listening to the podcast thank you for Brian and the MongoDB crew for uh, supporting us and coming on board and we will see you guys at the next podcast I got my special co-host here that wants to do the sign out for us so my pick is, it's like it's a Lego, it's a Lego case for iPods, and you can build it too. Oh, is that an invention? Yeah, that that's, sounds awesome. That sounds awesome. You're so smart. All right, can you say, that's all, folks. That's all, folks. This podcast has been a Meteor Club production. You can find out more information about Meteor Club at meteorjs.club pretty easy to join the mailing list and stay in the loop. Again, that's meteorjs.club.